as a Christian, there are certain attributes and characteristics that ought to define us. There are certain things that should never be seen in our character, in our speech, in our behavior, within our attitudes, because we make a claim. We claim to be the children of God. We claim to be Christ-like. We claim to follow his example. And because of that, there are certain attributes, there are certain things that should never be heard or seen within a child of God. God intends for us to act like citizens of heaven. First of all, God lets us know, the Apostle Paul let us know that our conversation is in heaven. While I am on this earth temporarily, in this tent that we call a body that we live in for a certain amount of time, God lets me know I can't stay because this is not my home. We are told very clearly that even from the beginning that God allowed us to know as Moses revealed it in the Pentateuch, as God told him to tell the people of Israel and us in perpetuity that death was brought upon us by sin. So while we are the children of God, while we are his people, we understand that this is not home and that one day it is appointed unto all men once to die after death to judgment. The body that we banish right now and relish so much, it will return to the dust from which it came in the spirit to God who gave it or animated this body. That being said, as a Christian, I have to ask myself each and every day, what does God require of me? Because if this is not home, one of these days I want to go home. I want to hear the Lord say, well done, good faithful servant. I want him to look within my heart. And God allowed the prophet to know when he was in Jesse's house to find a replacement for Saul, whose heart was not right with God and he disobeyed God. And while the prophet was looking at all of Jesse's fine, good-looking sons, God told him then, and he wants us to understand this now. God said, man, it's man, finite man, who looks on the outward appearance. God said, but I'm looking at the heart. I'm not looking at what you want others to show. I'm not looking at your reputation, your rep, what you want folks to think about you, what you want them to say about you. God says, I'm looking at your heart. I want to know the real person, not your reputation, but your character. And that being said, each and every one of us, every day of our lives, we're striving to live in such a way, knowing that I cannot stay on this earth. One of the last things my dad said to me when he died about 15 years ago, when my brothers and I were standing beside him in the bed and he had preached almost 60 years during the course of his life. And he looked at us very sternly. And he says, Nick, he called me Nick. He says, Nick, now we've been preaching. It's a better place, haven't we? I said, yeah, Daddy, what do you say to that? I said, yeah, Daddy, we have. We have been preaching that it's a better place. So every one of us from time to time got to do an introspective examination of ourselves because we get extremely attached to these things down here and they mess with, if you don't mind me saying it like that, they alter our attitudes and our judgment and our discernment and those things that we desire and those things that we want and those things that we cherish. 
and those things that we treasure. I remember the Lord saying when he sat down on that obscure hill and preached the greatest sermon that has ever been preached, recorded in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7, the Lord said, Lay not up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust are corrupt and thieves break through and steal. He said, Lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust are corrupt nor thieves break through and steal. And the Lord gives the rationale for those attitudes and for that way of thinking and carrying yourself because he says, for where your treasure is, there shall your heart be also. So the Lord said, be careful of those things that become important to you when they do not agree with my will, my word, and my way. That being said, then, what gets Christians off balance What gets us to where we're not carrying ourselves in such a way that we are shining the light of Jesus Christ? The Lord, and and we are commanded, it's not a suggestion. It is a commandment. It's a divine injunction. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works. And one of your good works is your attitude, your positivity, your character. The fact that you are a person who has a peace that passes understanding. When you carry yourself in that fashion, you are shining a light in, in a world of darkness and ignorance and hatred and malice where nobody trusts anybody and nobody loves anybody. The Lord said, you folks ought to be different. You're my people. You're my children, my church. He said, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another. Moses commanded the folks to love one another. Joshua commanded the folks to love one another. Abraham commanded the folks to love. So it wasn't like it had never been done before. What the Lord said is, I'm giving you a new standard. He's not just giving a new commandment, a new injunction. He's giving a new standard. You love one another like I loved you. I didn't put any prerequisites on my love. I didn't put any conditions on my love. While you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. Therefore, the Lord is telling each of us to get our heads right, get ahead in the game. He's telling each of us to carry ourselves in such a way That the world doesn't see us as just going along to get along. I'm just here. Excuse me for living. I'm just a little old Christian. I don't have a voice. I don't have a say. I have no influence. That is absolutely against everything God wants from us. As a matter of fact, God said, you are the salt of the earth. You're the ones that savor the earth. You're the ones that give flavor to the earth. You're the one that send the sweet smelling savor of love and awe and reverence when the rest of the world has expelled God from their schools, from their homes, from their community, and from the nation in many places. He says, your attitude is different. You carry yourself different. And I expect it. Brothers and sisters, let me tell you something. And give you a news flash in case, and I'm quite sure your fine minister has said this or alluded to it, and, and, and so have your elders and others. But look, Jesus wants first place in your 
life. And that is the only place he will accept. He is not going to be relegated to the position of a microwave oven or something that you call on when you need him. The Lord says, I'm on first place. You seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. And all these things shall be added unto you. We are people who are motivated by reward. That's our motivation. I remember when uh, my I asked my dad one time, I, I wanted a new bicycle. And, and he says, you got to work. And he made me work. My dad, when we moved from Memphis and he rented some land up in Crockett County and planted two acres of okra. Who plants two acres of okra? He said it builds character. And he made me work. I wanted that swim bike, but I had to work. I had to work for it. Don't you understand that God is our father and all of his promises are conditional. We have to fulfill the conditions in order to get the promises. God says, seek first the kingdom of heaven and its righteousness. That's a condition. What's the promise? All these things shall be added unto you. Joy don't come in the air. Joy is not like a virus or a bacteria or some dust or lint in the air that you sniff it and it gets inside you and you look at your hands and they look new and you look at your feet and they do too. That's not where joy comes from. Joy is not something passed on in the bloodstream from one generation to the, ne- to the next. Joy is something that is developed by obedience. And oftentimes we want to make joy some huggy, kissy feeling thing that we all feel good and, and you know, uh, eat some chicken and sing kumbaya. But that's not exactly what the Lord is talking about when he says joy. When the Lord commands joy. Joy is a prerequisite of being saved. It is a prerequisite of letting your light shine. It is a prerequisite of, of sowing salt. It is a prerequisite of leading others to Jesus. And in essence, at some point in time, in your discipleship, in your journey as a Christian, you've got to exhibit Something that other folks just don't get. That's why it's called, it's past understanding. You've got to exhibit a joy that shows that you are a child of God. So therefore, it is the result of obedience to the, to the word of God. There are so many people today. We, we talk about the tragedy a week or so ago. Of a young man that can walk in and death is in his eyes, in his soul. And he can look at little children and not see their humanity and take their lives. It's because we have removed God's and we have not fulfilled the conditions of being a civilized society in many places and in many homes And there are those who have a void. There is a place in our psyche, in our hearts, in our being. In him we live, we move, we have our being. And when I'm not living in him, when I am not motivated by his word, when I'm not altered by his teaching, when I am not following his example, there's something wrong with me. I have a void The difference between us and a beast 
is a conscious. God made the beasts living creatures, but he made us a living soul. And when that conscious is not developed, it's not taught, it's not trained by the word of God, now you've got something that is a beast. And the humanity is veiled and it is lost because of that. That's why God has made joy, like everything else, a conditional promise. If you want joy, you got to follow the conditions. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 and verses 29, the Lord said, Come unto me, come to me, all of you that labor and are heavy laden. That's a condition. You want, you want to have what the Lord is offering, then you've got to come away from the world. You've got to come away from those things and the beggarly elements of sin. And you've got to come to Jesus. He said, come to me, all of you that labor in a heavy laden, I will give you what? I will give you rest. You could take that word rest out and substitute joy. You could substitute peace. You could put assurance. You could put all of those words because all of them come from Jesus. But what's the condition? You gotta come out of the world. You gotta come out of the false teachings that are in the world. You gotta come out of the blindness and darkness and ignorance of the world. And you've got to come to Jesus. That's the condition. You want joy? Then Jesus says, you gotta come to me because I'm the only one that's going to offer it. The world offers happiness. Happiness comes from a compound word, hap and chance. In essence, happiness comes from outward circumstances. If everything goes right, if you cross all T's and dot all I's, if all ships rise, if your cows come home, you know, if you can may have your happiness uh, uh, in, we had a brother at church one Sunday, he was so proud of his car, that car made him so happy. And while we were worshiping, somebody was driving down Coleman Road with his happiness because they had broken into it. The fact is, you don't get caught up in this kind of stuff because you can't control it. This is why the Lord wants us to be blessed, blessed. He wants us to have a joy that comes from him that gives rest to our soul. Joy heals. Joy gives balance. Joy gives assurance. Joy gives access. Joy gives peace. Joy gives courage. When that individual is off balance, there is something usually wrong. Either their sight or something in their ears, their equilibrium is off. When we don't have the joy of Christ, I tell folk everywhere I go who are members of the church, you are the most important people on earth. You're God's people. You're the ones that he says, I will hear your prayers. You're the ones that he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You're the ones that he gave the commission to change the world. You're the change agents. We should not be off balance, but we should be on steadfast ground. Paul said to the brethren in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verses 58, Paul said, be steadfast, be balanced, steadfast unmovable. It doesn't matter. You find a man, I remember when I was playing football, the coach would tell us to get in a stance. And then he would come and push us and bump us and throw the football at us to see if he could make us fall. 
And if you, if you failed, he'd make you run the field uh, or, or, or some punishment. In essence, it was about building balance. And the Lord wants us to have balance. Be steadfast, Paul said, to a bunch of brethren who were shaky, to a bunch of brethren who were making bad decisions, to a bunch of brethren who were being affected by the persecution and the trials and tribulations that were happening to them in Corinth. Paul said, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. In essence, Paul say, you need to get yourself on solid ground and not move. When the Hebrew brethren, the Hellenistic Jews who were stuck around in Jerusalem, when they began to persecute them and burn them, put pitch on them and put them on crosses and light them afire to light the streets of Rome while they were still alive, many of them were saying, I didn't sign up for this. Nobody told me they were going to be killing us and burning us and feeding us to the lions. Nobody told us it was going to be this hard. And the Hebrew brethren had lost their joy, their confidence, their assurance, and were ready to stop being Christians. Give it up. Ready to go into apostasy. The Hebrew writer wrote the letter not apologizing for what was going on. Too many of us are apologetic. For what's happening in the world today, they tell you you're on the wrong side of history. Well, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be. They tell us we're narrow-minded and bigoted and crazy and all of these things, and we're ready to go and hide the same way the Hebrew brethren. We have a responsibility. We have a fight. We have a stand. You're supposed to have a voice that is heard all over the world Because your Savior, the most controversial leader in history, who started the most controversial organization in the history of the world, commanded you to go and save the world. That's a command. He commanded us to preach the gospel. He commanded us to be balanced and steadfast, unmovable. So the Hebrew writer wrote to them, not apologizing, But in Hebrew chapter 5 and verses 12, he said, When time when you ought to be teachers, you have need that one teach you again what be the first principles of the oracles of God. He said, y'all act like folks that need milk and not meat. Those off balance, I call them perpetual new converts. They keep, they may have been in the church 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, but they keep living their first year over and over and over again. Never getting on balance, getting on track, and getting on with it. When Paul said, study to show yourself approved, he wasn't talking about cracking a book and reading lines. That word study coming from the Greek in that context means to be diligent. Get it done. Get it done. Paul said the time would come when they would not ensure, would not uh, endure sound doctrine. That's not a date on the calendar. That's a time when the mind is so darkened, ignorant, to where that person's conscience, Paul said, is seared with a hot iron. You can't get through. That's what's happening in America right now. The time has come. It's not a date on the calendar. The time has come because men have not been changed and altered, filled with joy and assurance of the word of God. Man is called the upward looking one. 
It means that we know there is something innate. There's something that tells us that there is someone greater than we are. You can find people far back in the forest, the woods, the deserts, the jungle. They're going to worship something. They may worship a volcano or they may worship a river or they may worship a lion and tiger and bear. Oh, my. They're going to worship something. The fact is because something tells him that something is greater than he is. This is why we have to teach. And there are those who are caught in secular humanism, agnosticism, atheism, worldliness, materialism. And the world has reached that point, that boiling point, where many cannot endure. Their conscience is seared with a hot iron. So the Hebrew writer said to them, you ought to be teachers. You have need that one teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. When the apostle Paul was speaking to Titus, his two young, young preachers, Titus and Timothy, he had left Titus at Crete. He had left Timothy at Ephesus. Both of these young men understood they would be filled with joy and happiness, but their joy Their happiness and their security came from being with the Lord. It didn't come from everything being comfortable and all everything fitting together and everything working out and everything being pleasant. As a matter of fact, in the first century, there was very few things that were pleasant. There were very few times that the apostles weren't being persecuted and tried and having all types of tribulation. They suffered constantly and consistently. But Paul said to Titus, in Titus Titus chapter 2, verses 11 and verses 12, Paul said, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation has appeared unto all men, teaching us. Doing what, Paul? Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, here your joy comes, that we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. When you do that, you're going to have joy soberly, your responsibility to yourself. You're not getting drunk with pride. You're not getting drunk with materialism. You're not getting drunk with worldliness. You're not getting drunk with hatred and malice and prejudice. You're not getting drunk with all those things that have ruined so many people in our society today. You're sober, righteous, You're one of those individuals that the Lord said is merciful in Matthew 5. And as you can see the suffering of others, you can feel the pain of others, you can walk in other shoes. And this is why the Lord says, I'm going to come back because you're the type folks I'm going to take home with me. I was hungry, you fed me. I was naked, you clothed me. I was sick and in prison, you visited me. I was thirsty, you gave me. You're the kind of folks I'm taking to my heaven. I'm not taking a bunch of folks to my heaven and let them mess up my heaven with all the foolishness that they did not get straightened out while they were on this earth. So what all of us have got to understand, joy is not feeling good. And being a big smile, sometimes joy brings tears. Sometimes joy brings pain. Sometimes joy brings suffering, sometimes joy brings sacrifice. And when we go back to the first century, we see men and women who understood that they had to make a choice. You know, Joshua looked at the people of God 
And the problem with so many of us today in our society is we haven't chosen sides yet. We're straddling the fence. We're trying to get along. Don't rock the boat. Don't shake the tree. You know, I I got a family. I need to keep this job. I need to keep the. You know, Joshua said to the children of Israel near death, this old man said, if it seemed evil for you to serve the Lord, you need to choose. He said, you need to choose. You need to choose this day who you will serve. But Joshua went on to tell them what every one of us who have made up our mind that we're going to joyfully go to heaven regardless of the circumstances on this earth. He said, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Don't you understand that when the Bible speaks of joy, you're going to find very few times, especially in the New Testament, that's telling you that joy is about you feeling good and everything working out and having a good meal and all the things that we tend to think of is joy. Uh, joy is from our trust in the Lord and our trust in his power. Jesus heals that unbalanced Christian with his word. Jesus heals discouragement. He heals frustration. He overcomes those who are overwhelmed because he allows them to see that regardless of the circumstances on earth, you're not, this is not home. You're not trying to stay here. You're trying to go home to heaven one day. The Lord said in John chapter 14 and verses 1, after he had already told Peter, Peter, you're going to deny me three times. Peter said, no, Lord, I'm your man. No, Lord, uh-uh, I'm your rock. Lord said, Peter, before the rooster crows, you're going to deny me three times. You all know this. Peter did deny the Lord. Three times he denied him. Peter did not understand that he needed the power of the Lord. Peter was depending on the power of Peter and not the power of the Lord. This is why Paul said in Ephesians chapter 6 and verses 12, Paul said, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against, stand against the wiles of the devil. That person that is joyful has kept the devil out of their heart. That person that's filled with joy has kept the devil out of his home. That person who is filled with joy has kept the devil away from her children. You're filled with joy because you stood against the wiles of the devil. When Peter was near death or near martyrdom, Peter said in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verses 8, Peter says, be sober, be sober, stop walking around like you don't know you're at war. Stop being those individuals who aren't being vigilant, understanding that you're being stalked. He said, be sober, be vigilant. Why, Peter? Your opponent, your adversary, he calls them by name, the devil. As a roaring lion walking about seeking whom he may devour. And that's just what Peter said to the brethren. He didn't say, you know, I wish you guys well. I hope y'all have a good meal every day and a soft bed and a nice pillow to sleep on. I hope that you always have plenty of money in the bank and that you got an animal to ride on in your family. You got a beautiful wife and beautiful. 
You, you don't see that because they understood something. That their joy would come from obedience to the Lord and his word and his will. So for this reason, what God wants all of us to understand, that all God's promises, as I said, are con- conditional. Jesus' intent is that discipleship and Christianity be a joyful existence and experience. But it will happen only when we're obedient. In the book of John, chapter 15 and verses 11, in the promise of joy, the Lord said, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and and that your joy might be full. He's saying, my joy should be your joy. Your joy should be my joy. When you follow me and obey me and keep my will, you will have joy. So that's a wonderful promise. But what's the condition? The condition is given in verses 10. When he said, if, if clause here, if you keep my commandments, you shall abide in my love even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. Jesus said, you want joy, you want peace, you want happiness, you want assurance, then obey me. That's the condition. Obey me. And you will have those. The Lord said, as a matter of fact, I equate love with obedience. In the book of uh, Jesus said to each of us, he says in John chapter 14 and verses 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Simple as that. If you love me, keep your my commandments. God never promised us as Christians that we would not have suffering. He never told us that there wouldn't be trials and tribulations. He never promised us a crystal stare, that you're going to be able to sit down on the seat of do nothing, lean back on the elbows of do less, and say, wake me up when the fight is over. He never promised that to any of us. For us to even think that that's what joy is, is a misappropriation of the teaching of Jesus and a misunderstanding of his character and a total misappreciation of what a Christian has to do in the world in which they live. The Lord said it very clearly uh, to us in Matthew chapter 10 and verses 16. He says, Behold, I send you forth. As sheep in the midst of wolves, be you therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. The Lord says, I'm sending you out basically defenseless. There's nothing as defenseless as sheep. They can't swim good, can't run fast, don't have horns. Many of them don't have horns. Many of them don't have claws. They don't have fangs. They don't have poison. They don't have hides. A sheep, basically a meal on wheels. And this is why the Lord equates it. He says, I'm sending you forth. I didn't tell you to go hide. Too many of us as Christians find ourselves like the Reubenites, I believe they were, when Moses had to ask them, so you're telling us that your brethren are going to fight and you sit here? Y'all not coming to fight with us? You like this land on this side and you're not going with us to fight? 
Many of us as the Lord's people seem to believe that the Lord never told us to fight the good fight of faith. The Lord says, I send you forth as sheep among wolves. Paul also warned in the book of Acts chapter 20, 29 and 30. Paul said, for I know that after my departing, after my departing, after I'm gone, even after my martyrdom, if you please. He says, after my departing, shall grievous wolves come in among you, not sparing the flock. He also told Ephesus on that occasion of your own selves, shall men arise speaking perverse things to draw away disciples after them. In essence, Paul is repeating the same admonition, the same warning that Jesus made. They're going to come after you. They're going to come after you. They're going to come after you. You're the last man standing. You're the ones that are saying that the Bible is right and inerrant and inspired from God, and we are not to add to it or take from it. You're the ones who are making the attempt to raise your children and the nurture and admonition of the Lord, which is insulting to these people who believe they should just let their children raise themselves. You're the ones, as I look through this audience, who've probably had relationship that have lasted for decades, allowing folks to see what Adam was talking about when he said, shall a man leave father and mother and cleave to his wife? And they twain shall be one flesh. Adam was created full grown. God allowed him to be the first prophet and speak in perpetuity what he intended marriage to be. A relationship between a man and a woman. And that's what God intends. You're one of the last men standing saying that that's God's people. Christian people. Bible-believing people have got to regain their voice. God's not going to give you joy without suffering. As a matter of fact, our joy comes from suffering. When we suffer for the Lord, that's where our joy comes from. Joy brings balance. It helps us stand. It makes us strong. In the book of James chapter 1, Verses 2 through verses 5, James says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations, knowing this, that the trying, the testing of your faith, the testing of your faith work at patience or endurance. He said, But let patience have her perfect work, that you may be perfect and entire, lacking or wanting nothing. He says, if any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God who give it to every man or all men liberally and abrade it not. God don't say that was a stupid question. He says, and it shall be given unto you. The Apostle Paul, when he said in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, if there be any consolation in Christ... If any comfort in love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any bowels and mercies or compassion and kindness, Paul said, fulfill my joy that you be like-minded and one of accord. Paul said, let none of you, let none of you look on his own things, but every man on the things of others. But notice what Paul said in verses 17. 
He says, yes, and if I be offered up on the sacrifice and the service of faith, I joy, I joy and rejoice with you all. Paul says, if I die, I die. Why are you so happy, Paul, about that? Paul says, for me to live is Christ. For me to die is gain. In Philippians chapter 1 and verses 21. In essence, all of us have to realize that there are troubles and trials and tribulation that is coming, but we have to have joy. In First Peter chapter 1 verses 6 through 8, Peter said, wherein you greatly rejoice, if need be. He said, you are in heaviness through manifold temptation. In other words, because you've been suffering and suffering. People say that Paul, he, he uh, endured because he was strong. Paul said, I've been shipwrecked. I've been snake bit. I've been caned. I've been stoned, and the only reason why Paul survived the stoning was he pretended to be dead. He'd been in prison. He was locked to a Roman soldier for two years. The apostle Paul suffered much. Folks say, well, Paul uh, endured because he was strong. You're absolutely wrong. Paul was strong because he endured. Because when the heavy lifting came... Like lifting weights, you may start with 5 pounds. You may go to 10. You may go to 15, 25, 50, 100 pounds. I've watched young men who were just like a bean pole and they blow up into muscles because they endured. The body got stronger as they lifted the weights. When you refuse to run, compromise, capitulate, and quit... When the devil comes at you with everything, calling you everything but a child of God. When there are those who give you the opportunity to walk away and renounce the fact that you are Christian the way they did to our brethren in the first century. When you endure and you stand and you refuse to quit, you get stronger and stronger and stronger. This is why Peter said the trial of your faith being much more precious than gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, may be found with praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen you love. In whom, though now you see him not, yet believing, Paul said, you uh, Peter said, rather, you rejoice with joy unspeakable, full of glory. And that says, you're those people that the Lord, when Thomas says, you know what? Uh, I hear y'all talking, but if I can't put my hand in his chest, and if I can't put my finger in those nail prints, and if I can't rub my hand across his palm, across his forehead, and feel where those thorns, I'm not going to believe. Jesus walks in, didn't even open the door. Come over here, Tom. No, Lord, I didn't really mean it. No, come over here, Tom. No, Lord, I don't have to do it. No, no, Thomas. I heard you talking all that big talk. You come over here, Thomas. You put your hand in my hand. You stick your hand in my side. But he said, while you believe because you touched me, 
Blessed are those who believe who didn't get a chance, if you don't mind me paraphrasing, who didn't get a chance to touch me. That's you. It was you he's talking about. You didn't see Jesus get scourged. You didn't see him drag that cross down that street in Jerusalem. You didn't see him on that garbage heap on the outside of the city with a thief on the right and a thief on the left. You didn't see him when he cried out, My God, why have you forsaken me? And Father, forgive them. They don't know what they do. You didn't see it. You didn't hear it. But you believe it. Lord is saying to Thomas, you believe it. Because you see it. He says, I'm going to have some children in 2022 who are going to see it because they believe it. Because they understand that without faith, it is impossible to please God. For they that come to the Father must first believe that he is. And he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. Folks who diligently seek the Lord have joy. They have peace. They have happiness. They understand I'm not at home. I want to go home one day. I want to go to a place where there is no sorrow, no sin, no suffering, no sickness, no aging. I want to go to a place where there are no cemeteries, no graveyards, no hospitals. I want to go to the place where there's Dr. Jesus who has never lost a case. That's where I want to go. That should bring you Joy. That should give you joy. That one day I leave this tent. I'm leaving this thing behind. I'm getting one of those things that the Lord had. One of those things that came through the door and didn't even open the door. I want one of those, Lord. And he has promised to give it to us if we stand and never get weary and well-doing. The world, the devil wants to beat you down. They want to beat you down till you are overwhelmed, frustrated, disgusted, tired of this like the Hebrew brethren. You don't give them the pleasure. All the Lord, the Lord didn't need Peter to pick up a knife. All he needed Peter to do was stand there and look at those soldiers and say, I'm with him and I'm not moving. Lord said, don't you know I could call legions of angels if I wanted to do an earthly carnal fight? You put that thing down. You're a fisherman. You're not a swordsman. They're going to kill you. In essence, the Lord is telling us the same thing. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. He don't need you throwing a cocktail. He don't need you breaking the window. He don't need you standing out in the street cussing and doing all types of of, of irreparable things that bring shame and reproach on his name. All he needs us to do is, first of all, love one another. He said, by this shall all men know you're my disciples. All he needs us to do is preach the gospel. He said, I want the world to hear what happened in Jerusalem. You go tell them what they did to me. You tell them how they beat me up like a dog. You tell them how they blindfolded me and slapped me upside my head. You tell them how they spat on me. You tell them how they drug me through the streets, removed my clothing, put me on the scourging post, and hit me 39 times. 
with an instrument that was pulling plugs of flesh out of my body and rupturing my body and all of my organs. You tell them what they did to me at Jerusalem. You go to the whole world and you tell them what they did to me. But you tell them that after three days, I want them to hear that after three days, I opened my own eyes. I'd already told Pontius Pilate, you don't take my life. Don't stand up here bragging like you can save me. You don't take my life. I give my life. I give it. When Jesus died, his head didn't drop like ours do when we die. The Bible says he lowered his head and he gave up the ghost. At the moment he decided to die, Jesus died like no man has ever died before. You go tell people that on the third day I opened my own eyes. I got up from my own deathbed. I folded my own death clothing. I walked out of the tomb and declared all authority, all power in heaven and earth is given unto me. You go tell them that. That death has no more power over you. I have conquered death for every man. I have mitigated. I have ended the feud that began in Eden. I have paid the price of your redemption. Jesus didn't just die for our sins. Jesus died in our place. He died in our place. You tell them they've got to believe this. If they're going to be able to get out of this veil of tears and see what God has promised them, and see the gorgeous place that Jesus said he was going to prepare, they got to believe it, because if you don't have faith, you can't please me. Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, and I want to see some changes. Don't think you're going to come to my heaven without making changes. I'm not going to have you come to the heaven where Paul got his head cut off, where James was pushed through with a sword, Matthew killed in Ethiopia, countless thousands of Christians mauled and devoured by animals or burned up, and I'm going to let you come to the same heaven without you making any changes? No, no, it don't work like that. If you don't repent, you're going to perish. I want to see change. When the Lord told that woman and asked her who was caught in sin in the very act, I can see that poor woman trying to hold on to whatever pieces of clothing that they let her grab while they were dragging her out in the public to embarrass and shame her. Can you see her trying to cover herself while they're standing around with rocks in their hands? And Jesus said, those of you who are without sin, you throw the first stone, I'll throw the second one. Go ahead, throw it. Those of you who can say by Moses' law, by God's law, that you are condemning this woman properly because you have the right to do so. You throw the first stone. I'll throw the second one. And when he asked her, where were those who condemned her? She says, I have none. He says, I don't either. You stop sinning. You stop sinning. you got to confess to the world. You can't play, be underground. You can't play this on the down low. You can't sneak around and be a Christian. You're going to have to let all men know that I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. The Lord said, foxes have holes, birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man have not where to lay, know where to lay his head. He's not talking about poverty. He says, i got nowhere to hide. I'm out there. The fox can run in the hole. The bird can go in the nest. I'm out there. 
And you got to bury your old man in the watery grave because you just took the life from him and said, I mortify you and I'm not feeding you anymore. Anything dead need burying. You pick the old man up, you bury him in the watery grave. He stands up again. The word resurrection means to stand up again if you fall away. The only way you're going to get your joy back is that you and the Lord get on the same page. That's what you're going to have to do, like the prodigal. you got to come home. you got to come home. Think about it while we stand and sing.